morning, good morning. I forgot, to, I forgot to pray for the brothers and sisters that are worshiping with their, uh, their guns out this morning hunting. I, um, I know there's many. They're praying harder than we are, I guarantee you that. Praying for a harvest. I, uh, if this is your first time at Spring Hill, I want to welcome you. Uh, so great to have you here in our midst. We are in the midst of this series called Paradox, where we've been studying the life of this king named Solomon in the Old Testament, and we've named it Paradox because Solomon was this king, remember, who amassed all this wealth, um, had incredible uh, gifts from the Lord of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, uh, and yet also um, often fell right into his flesh. And I think he gives such a good picture, a story of us as God's people um, who've been given this word, given wisdom, and yet so often uh, fall on our own uh, flesh and our own struggles. And um, this morning, we're going to uh, come to God's word in 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, and really what we find is like Solomon, this is the, this is the, the peak of Solomon's life, of his time with the Lord. Um, if there was a point where Solomon would say, yeah, now that's a shining moment, this is it. Um, and we're going to read uh, about the moment that the ark was brought into the temple, and Solomon really leads this worship service of God's people unlike any other. And we're going to ask, what does it mean for us? What does this story teach us? So I want to invite you, we're going to read chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. It's a little lengthy, uh, but it gives us the full picture. So let's, let's listen to God's word together. It says this, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Athenim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. They brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of the meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except for the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you in an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, 
Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen to the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which, the, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. So it was the seventh month of the year. It was harvest season, grapes and olives, somewhere probably in September or October, much like we're experiencing this morning. And all of Jerusalem was out in the streets to celebrate this annual feast, feast, this festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. And of all the festivals in the Old Testament, this is by far my favorite. I'll give you my bias. Families would build these temporary shelters out in the wilderness made of these thatched roofs and these palm branches. And for a week, get this, all of Israel, young and old, would camp out in these tents to remember God's faithfulness in the wilderness centuries before. A few summers ago, my family went to the YMCA camp of the Rockies, and one of the activities that week was this exact kind of thing. Um, it was a competition where families had 20 minutes to build an emergency shelter together to see who could do the best. And the minute they said go, right, I'm in survivalist mode. I'm thinking, okay. We're gonna build a lean-to, let's get these logs up over here, and then we'll put some branches on the roof, keep things nice and dry, we need to get some big rocks to hold it all in place, like, I'm in it to win it, right? And then suddenly, everything goes off the rails. I hear my youngest daughter say, over here, we could put the door for the fairies. <laughs> and I was like, what? My other daughter's talking about pine cones for the squirrels. Meanwhile, I look over and mom of these two Boy Scouts of America have built like the perfect teepee you've ever seen. <laughs> Never felt so lonely. <laughs> now just picture thousands of people that they've left the comforts of their homes to sit under these shelters to remember a time when all of Israel were nomads. Year after year, this is entrenched in their culture. And as they sat in these booths, they would retell the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, of, of them existing solely by God's provision, of the only food provided coming down as manna and quail from the sky. Even their place of worship was really just a big temporary tent. They called it a tabernacle. It was where God's presence was manifest. But now imagine this. Right in the midst of this feast, for the first time in Israel's history, a permanent place of worship is about to be established. Like in the middle of a celebration of tents, the tabernacle suddenly means nothing. It is worthless because God will now be worshiped in a stone temple right here in the holy city of David. Brian helped us understand last week, it took years, seven years of hard labor, 70,000 men transporting materials, 80,000 more quarrying stones. There were, get this, 3,600 project managers. And now the house is complete. And really, all that's left to do was dedicate this temple to God. Just think with me about the most incredible worship experience you've ever had. What was it that made it so powerful? I'll bet if we went around the room, we could tell stories all day. 
When was the time that you truly lost yourself, forgot where it was that you were in worship? You know, I picture like Billy Graham. Take this scene and multiply that times a thousand. This day wasn't just the pinnacle of Solomon's life. This was the pinnacle of Israel's existence. Like a temple of the Lord, who would have thought where God would make his presence known among his flock? Second Chronicles chapter five tells us there was a massive choir arrayed in the finest of linens, 120 priests belting their trumpets. I mean, we got quite the band, but think about that. 120 trumpets, an orchestra of cymbals, lyres, harps. Like goosebumps can't explain what this day would have been like. All of Israel's existence culminated to this moment. And as the congregation prepares themselves for God's glory, we find, we find that this is a, like a perfect rubric for what worship is. The entire church showed up. I'll ask you again, when was the time, the last time that you truly worshiped? You know, we live in a culture where church is just something we do, right? It's a rhythm of life, but I want us to think this morning, why are we here? Why are we a worshiping people in the first place? And I want to point out three things that I think uh, we find in this passage that help us understand the why of our worship. And it looks like this. One, we come to meet with the living God. Two, we expect that this living God is going to breathe his word on us when we do. And three, we gather for worship because we know his presence changes our lives. So just walk out this first one with me, right? It sounds obvious, but maybe not so much as we think, right? When we worship, we meet with the living God. I once heard a caution of two kinds of errant worship that are sort of rampant in the church today. I believe it was Dallas Willard who talked about two extremes that he named the scarecrow and the tin man. If you picture like a pendulum, picture one on either end. And he says to worship as the scarecrow is to Hell, are we back? Let me grab them. Let me, are we good? Check. All right, let's return to the scarecrow and the tin man. Um, to worship as the scarecrow is to focus our worship entirely on emotion. Remember what the scarecrow is always singing? He says, if I only had a brain, right? And on this side of the spectrum, we, we come to worship to feel good. We're empty and we want to be filled up. We, we come for the experience. We want the sensation. And when we leave, um, we then evaluate our worship in terms of how good it felt. Were there laughter? Was there tears? Do I feel better now than when I first stepped into this place? And this isn't inherently wrong, right? I think as emotional beings, our emotions are a part of worship. And yet if we're not vigilant, this kind of worship reduces God to a feeling, even more dangerous, it reduces Sunday morning to something that revolves around me. See, when you worship like the scarecrow, at some point it becomes this, this chasing after the wind, right? Like last Sunday was euphoria, so we, we got to somehow make this one even better. I read this article just last week about the five things the church can learn from a Taylor Swift concert. And I thought, God help us. No, see, but then there's the worship of the tin man, right? If I only had a heart. 
And sometimes the pendulum swings so much to the intellect that we forget who it is that we've come to worship. We get so caught up in the particulars that we misplace why we're here in the first place. That the Bible becomes a textbook, the, the sermon becomes a checkbox. And we lose the fact that like, we have come to experience the presence of the living God. Just notice this with me. Watch what happens in this worship of Solomon and God's people. We're told the king first invites God's people to worship. Elders now lead this church up the steps into the temple courts. This is worth noting. The most momentous worship service in all the Old Testament. And the elders are leading God's people. Behind them, all the men of Israel, every rung of leadership is represented. The, the entire church has gathered. And as they prepare for God's glory to come down, things get really messy. Look again at verse 5. King Solomon begins this ritual of sacrificing, we're told, so many sheep and oxen, they couldn't be counted or numbered. Now think about this. Brand new temple, right? It's got that new carpet smell to it. And blood is everywhere. Is this how you'd start your, your first worship service? But picture with me, is this, this sacrifice goes down, right? The, the priests are carrying this Ark of the Covenant up to this room called the Holiest of Holies, the center of the temple. And they expect that's where the living God is gonna dwell. You might remember the Ark is, is that box that held the tablets of the Ten Commandments. They were given to God's people through Moses on Mount Sinai. And so this Ark, it represents the manifestation of God's glory. So, so much so that if you touched it, the holiness of God would quite literally kill you. So they carried it on rods. In fact, more than that, Solomon's father David was so caught up in God's presence that he he started this practice where he would sacrifice an animal every six steps as they carried the ark just to cover the people's sin. You talk about slowing things down, right? Six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. Let's consider who it is that we're worshiping. One, two, three, Four, five, six. Confession of sin. Let's remember whose presence we're in. I mean, did you know that we've come to this place to meet with the living God? I mean, I know you know that, but do you know that? Like his holiness, his splendor is so unmistakably pure that apart from the sacrifice of Christ, just to look at his face would be our ruin. And yet God comes down in this cloud that somehow reveals his presence, but also simultaneously shields God's people from his holiness. They're sacrificing animal upon animal to cover the church in preparation for this moment. You know, it's crazy to me. The book of Hebrews tells us when Christ came, all it took was once. One sacrifice, the perfect lamb, and this holy transcendent God now meets with us right here. Free of the cloud, not cordoned off in a room, the Holy Spirit is now with his people. See, here's what I'm saying, right? I love a good sermon that moves the body, right? I, I love worship that, that leads God's people. I love a, a Bible study that blows my mind. But if worship is reduced to a feeling or it's reduced to mere knowledge, we've misplaced why we're here. The purpose for our worship is nothing less than the fact that the almighty God that we know is to be worshiped in this place. You know, it's mind-blowing to me, right? Solomon builds this beautiful temple. Like, he's the man and he knows it. 
Again, Brian mentioned last week all the inlays and the intricate details of the most holy place on earth. And yet when you watch Solomon's prayer, he says almost nothing about the building. You ever been to a dedication of a building? Like that's all they talk about. That's all they talk about. They pat themselves on the back about the construction project and management gets up and says a few words. It's crazy. There's hardly anything mentioned about the hard work of this assembly or how Solomon's going to go down in history as one of the greats. He only gives blessing to the Lord. See, when we come to worship, we come expecting to encounter a God whose power and might and magnificence is entirely incomprehensible. And yet in Christ, it's entirely accessible at the same time. See, and this means something, right? It, it means that our worship isn't just something that we do on Sunday. If God's presence is now with us by the Holy Spirit, then we worship all week. I love how Sinclair Ferguson wrote about this. My boy Sinclair. Nerdy, by the way. You know that's my word. No, first he says, God tells us I want to be worshiped in the tabernacle. So God's people worship in that place. And then Solomon builds the temple, right? And God says, okay, the tabernacle's useless. Get rid of it. I'll meet you in the temple. That's where we're going to worship. And then Jesus comes. And the veil is torn in two. And the temple is torn asunder. And God said, I want to be worshiped in your heart now. My presence is with you in Jesus' name. My temple will now be my people. Just consider that. How might the awareness of God's presence change the way you walk and talk this week? If the living God goes with us, we, we don't just worship on Sunday. We worship in the car on Monday morning. We worship in the office. We worship at the gym. We worship on the hunt. We worship as we clean the yard, as we clean out the garage. We worship when we shovel snow, believe it or not. Because we know that in our worship, we encounter the living God. Which brings me to my second point, and that is that the reason for our worship is we believe that this living God is one who speaks. It's one who speaks to us. You know, they say the most dangerous part of any relationship is something called stagnation. You heard about that? Married couples, hear me out. When two people come together, right, it's only a matter of time before their differences are exposed. And it's often those differences that then create a conflict in relationship. And therapists know, like, it's one thing to have a discussion or a disagreement, but when things go silent, that's when the alarm bells go off. When you are stuck with nothing left to say, you've come to the place of stagnation. You're just waiting for the relationship to end. Do you know what's incredible about our God? Our God speaks to us. If we would stop and we would listen to the stillness of his voice. I, I want you to notice something about that ark. Look again in verse 9. Our lesson tells us this. There was nothing in the ark except for two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, or Mount Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with his people. Why would the ark carry those stones? You might remember, God had spoken to Moses up on this mountain. Moses carries the written word down to the people. And from that point on, there is something about those tablets placed in this ark that instructs all of Israel, you are now following a speaking God. Not only do we encounter a living God in worship, right? But we should also know he has a word for us. Look at this in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It will not return empty. It will accomplish what I purpose. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Isaiah 48. Say it with me. 
The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. I'll tell you a story of a woman named Sarah Salone. Sarah was a doctor at the Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem. Part of her research was to rediscover ancient practices of medicine in Israel's history. She had studied all the greats, Josephus and Pliny, and she said in their writings, she found these, these discussions about fruit and, and these trees that bore medicinal uh, 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 fruit. But Sarah said that in the midst of her studies, she also realized all these trees had gone extinct. But she also knew in her studies that in the midst of these archaeological digs that scientists would often find ancient seeds that then were later stored in a national database. So she went to her supervisors and she proposed planting some of these seeds to see if they would grow again. And of course she was laughed at. Those seeds won't sprout. In the meantime, you're going to destroy history. Finally, she talked one of her supervisors into letting her just plant one seed. She put it into the soil. She covered it over, watered it for six weeks straight. And there it was, a little ancient green sprout. See, here's my point. God's word is an imperishable seed. 1 Peter 1.23, for you've been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Once you have God's word, no one can take it from you. It goes into eternity with you. It is a word that endures forever. It speaks by the breath of God like nothing else can. There is no wisdom on earth like it. You want to define success, know how to achieve greatness in this life? Open the word. You want peace in the midst of anxious headlines and an answer to your loneliness or sorrow? It begins with the word. You want wisdom as a parent or knowledge as a grandparent, a spouse? It begins with his word. You want advice on how to deal with difficult people? You could ask a friend or you could consult the word. See, but more than all of that, the reason that God speaks to us is his word brings salvation. When you wake up in the morning and you put your feet on the ground, here's the question. Do you expect that the living God is with you? Do you allow him to speak into your day? I mentioned this earlier this summer. I'll, I'll kick it again. What if this week you just took one verse of scripture every day and let that be God's word? What if in focusing on that word, your day shaped in God's presence? See, my point is this. We worship because we were made to worship. As human beings, we will find something to worship in this life. But the only thing that fulfills us, the only worship worth entering into, is a living and speaking God. Which brings me to my final point. And that is that when you encounter God's presence, you will never be the same. Look again with me at verse 10. Look at how this plays. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You talk about a paradox. This God who is all present and above all somehow also chooses to presence, make his presence manifest in a place built by human hands. I mean, can you imagine if Solomon had spent all that time and effort, all those people, all those man hours, and God was like, nah, it's just a building. Like, Solomon, I appreciate the efforts, but I, I'm God. I could have made it myself. Just turn it into a gym or something. No, just consider this. Without the presence of God, Solomon built a fancy house. Without the presence of God, God's people gathered up for a really fancy symphony 
Without the presence of God, the builders quite literally built in vain. Psalm 127 says it like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, their labor is worthless, meaningless. One of my favorite commentaries on this passage told a story of a young boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. She was suffering from the same disease that her brother had conquered years prior. And the doctor had told this family, the only way for this girl to survive is if we get the transfusion of this brother's blood. But of course, this little boy, he was terrified. He was, he was scared to death. And the doctor begged him, he said, please, he said, you're the only one. Would you do this for your sis? And as the tears welled up in this boy's eyes, he said, I'll do it for my sister. Well, as they wheeled the two back into the waiting room, no one said a word. He just looked at his sister, tears rolling down his cheeks, smiling. And as they put the needle into his arm, the blood began to leave his veins. Johnny looked up at the doctor and he said, Doc, how many more minutes before I die? And only then did everyone realize the brother thought the doctor was asking for all of his blood. And he loved his sister enough to give it. See, here's my point. The difference between those priests who could not stand the cloud of God's presence, the difference between those men sacrificing endlessly on their, to, to cover their sin, the difference between those men holding poles to stand away from the, the ark is that for those who put their faith in Christ, we have a perfect mediator who by his blood has given us eternal access to the Father. In Christ, we now stand in the presence of the living God. Oh, worship the king, oh, glorious above, oh, gratefully sing of his wonderful love. I've shared this many times over throughout the years, and forgive me if I've said it before here. In my decades of ministry, I've had the privilege of being with many people as they came to the, the end of this side of eternity. I've sat by the bedside of some of the most successful men by the world standards, submarine commanders, politicians, oil tycoons, CEOs. I have never once heard someone on their deathbed talk to me about their resume or about their career or how many hours they worked or how much money they amassed. But without fail, every one of them at the end of their life wanted nothing else but to dwell in the presence of the Lord, to be with the living God who speaks, to be comforted by his presence to dwell in his course, to live with him forever. Hear me, here's my point. Whatever plans you're making for yourself, whatever it is that you're building, unless the Lord builds the house, we're doing it all in vain. We worship a God who not only fulfilled his promise of a temple for the people, but, but then fulfilled an even greater promise and Jesus Christ come down and we're told that he's coming again and that when all see the Jesus glory descend and the word of the living Christ speaks, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that he is Lord. Which leaves us then this week with three questions. What does it look like for you to worship God not just today, but every day of your life? What is one habit that you can create right now by which you expect that this living God is gonna speak to you? And as you go about your best plans, ask yourself, who is it that's building your house? Let's ask the living God to continue to speak to us as we pray to him. Will you pray?
God, we confess that the times where we've made our worship about us and not you, the times where we've made our life plans about what I want and not what you want, the times where in our sin we, we've slipped into what my flesh desires instead of what the spirit within me commands. So God, like Solomon, we, we just return to you this morning. As your living stones, as a temple by which somehow the Holy Spirit has made himself manifest, and we worship you. God, we long for that day, Lord, in Revelation where you have told us that the elders will lead us again in worship. God, where you will be glorified without end. Where the glory of your majesty shines forever upon us. But Lord, for this day, for this moment, and this time, we pray this week that you would make us a worshiping people. That everything that we say, everything that we do, all that we are, would bring worship to your name. Because you're worthy, God. And that's enough. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.